stories to you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Rosemary Milsom. I'm the founding director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you are new, have never been to a Writers' Festival event before. I do see some familiar faces in the audience, although it has been two years since we had a live event. Uh, thank you for supporting our inaugural Emerging Writers program, Fresh Inc. Uh, we feel really strongly that we want to produce great writers. We need great writers in the world. And because we're in a regional area, I think that the festival has a role to play in doing what we can to inspire you, to give you practical information and, uh, and hopefully allow you to kind of flourish and, and, and get some ideas from our wonderful panels. I want to acknowledge that we're meeting today on the land of the Wabakul and Waramai peoples, the original storytellers of the Hunter region, and I pay my respect to elders present, emerging and past, and welcome any Aboriginal people who are here today. I want to thank Newcastle Library for collaborating with the festival on this program, uh, particularly Christina Roberts and also Ed Wright, who many of you may know, local writer, publisher, who has been integral to coming up with this program. We really hope it becomes an annual event. So please take one minute to fill out those slips of paper that you have on your chair at the end of this session because we get funding and we've got special funding for this program. We'd really like to do it again. So we have to build our case. It's as simple as that. And we want to be able to go back to our funder, uh, Create New South Wales and say, this is the value of doing this program. Please help us again. That's <laughs> with our handout. <laughs> That's essentially the way it works, as brutal as that sounds. At the end of this session, the writers will be available to uh, sign their books. I really encourage you to grab hold of their books if you can. It's, it's been a really tough year for writers. While everyone's been stuck at home and doing a lot of reading, all their events have pretty much been cancelled, their live events in front of audiences, and everything's moved online. That's succeeded in some aspects, hasn't succeeded in others. And so we really need to support our writers and the best way we can do that is by buying their books. And uh, Bastian's book is on its way, so there's no book, unfortunately. Thanks, Bree. Uh, but, um, but Susan and Bree's books are available and thanks to McLean's for being here to have those books for sale. We couldn't do it without them. Now to this wonderful panel. Immediately to my right is Brie Lee. Her first book, Eggshell Skull, was published in 2018 and shortlisted for a number of awards, including the 2019 Victoria's Premier Award and the 2019 Indie Book Awards. It was also longlisted for the 2019 Stella Prize. She's since published On Beauty and has a new book, which we've just been chatting about in the green room, Who Gets to Be Smart, Privilege, Power and Knowledge, and it's coming out in June. Next to Brie, we have Bastian. Bastian Phelan-Fox is a Newcastle writer, musician and zine maker. Bastian's debut memoir about hair and gender identity is forthcoming from Giramondo. They are a PhD student at University of Newcastle and I'm really pleased that we've just uh, appointed Bastian to be the project coordinator. We're launching a new Emerging Writers' Prize in June and uh, it's going to enable a writer living in regional New South Wales to win $5,000 for professional development. And Bastian's come on board to help manage that because it's a big year ahead and I've got to actually get a program together for September. I'm getting a little bit anxious about that. So, um, yeah, welcome to the festival team, Bastian. And uh, next to Bastian is Susan Francis, another great local talent. And I think 
it's really important to look at Susan and uh, a couple of other panellists we've had this weekend because someone commented last night, uh, we had some drinks here, um, you know, who's been coming to a who's been coming so far, who's booked tickets, you know, are they sort of uni students? And I think the image of an emerging writer is a 20-year-old cool thing with a leather jacket and, um, you know, lots to say. But an emerging writer is anybody at that stage in their writing. It, it can be a 90-year-old, it can be a 19-year-old, it can be a 40-year-old. So I, I think it's really important that we look to, um, you know, kind of undoing that stereotype of the emerging writer. And our, the Emerging Writers Prize we're launching will have no age barrier, so, which I'm really, really um, committed to. So I want to encourage writing from all ages. A lot of women have to raise children and have responsibility and commitments. The only time they can get to writing is when all that's done. And, uh, and I think that it's really important we, um, we support women, particularly of, um, of a certain age, Susan. Susan's debut memoir, The Love That Remains, was published by Alan and Unwin uh, in 2020, so last year. She's currently writing her second book, a novel, centred on the controversy of the Belibo Five. Please welcome our panel. I wanted to give you an outline of the books by the, uh, by the work of these uh, three people on the panel, but I thought because Memoir is so personal, I thought it would be really uh, interesting and probably far more worthwhile than having me su um, summarise them. Just ask each of the writers to just introduce us to their memoir. Bree? Thank you so much. Um, I would also just like to acknowledge that I was born and raised on Yagra and Turrbal land in Brisbane, um, and I now am delighted to live in Sydney, which is Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I also um, pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, so my book, Eggshell Skull, the first one, um, came out in 2018, uh, feels like 100 years ago now. Um, and put very simply, um, I was a law student and went straight from um, my law degree to a very coveted position as judge's associate in the Queensland District Court. It's a year-long contract working in the courts as basically an assistant to a judge. And for that year, um, every week, uh, the, well, the judge I worked for did almost exclusively criminal law. Um, which meant for us every week a new trial and a handful of new sentences. And it was pretty much exclusively sex crime, child sexual abuse, adult sexual assault. Um, and what I was seeing that year in terms of how um, the actual cogs of the system work uh, was a sort of rude awakening um, and a very um, painful process of sort of disillusionment and just how unfair the system is and that it's... Not the case, I believe, that it's broken. I believe it was built by and for men and it's working just as it was intended to. Um, so at the end of that year, um, I decided to go to the police and make a complaint about something that had been done to me when I was a child and that kicked off a two-year-long investigation. And then I saw the other side um, of, of how drawn out and excruciating the process of trying to have your matter heard you know, through the police, through prosecution, all of that side of things was as well. Uh, and I just felt that there were very few people who had knowledge of how the legal system worked in terms of legal training and legal expertise who were willing to sort of torch their careers by speaking honestly about some of the problems in the system. And even fewer people who had experienced both sides of the system as a complainant and as a professional. Um, and so I wrote the book about it, um, about my experiences in that system uh, and then since then have gone on to do quite a lot of uh, legal advocacy 
um, to try and get some sort of change happening. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Bree. Bastian, and I, I, I want to say I've got Brad Bastian on this panel because um, they are in the process of finishing a book. So many of you in the audience might be at that point as well. Um, you know, you've, you've been sort of writing away for a number of years uh, and I think it's really important to have someone speak about that because, you know, the bookies are not on the shelves yet. So, and there's still some big decisions to be made, aren't there, Bastian? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it does, it feels a little funny to be sitting here going, oh, it's, it, the book is still not fully there, but it's getting there. <laughs> um, and maybe the last step is really just taking a moment to kind of gently hold it before I let it go into the world. Um, yeah, so my book is, um, uh, it kind of, it's a coming of age story. It uh, starts in high school. It covers my um, early to sort of late 20s. And it's um, centered around this kind of, um, a surprise discovery of being able to grow facial hair. And um, so I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. One of the um, things that can be associated with that is hair growth. Um, often it's called excessive hair growth, but I find that a problematic term because what is excess and like whose hair is too much? Um, so yeah, I guess like from my kind of early teenage years, I was, um, thinking about this thing that makes me visibly different and um, has led to, you know, many, many interactions with people that have ranged from um, quite traumatic to um, really life-affirming. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of about me negotiating uh, identity and, yeah, just in that kind of chaos of your early 20s of being like, oh, who am I? Like, how am I going to present myself to the world? Who do I belong with? Who are my people? Um, finding your people and then going, wait, are they really my people? Um, do I have to be a certain way even to fit into a marginal group? Um, yeah, and so the last part of the book kind of covers this period where I started to withdraw from um, society and spend a lot of time by myself doing a lot of self-care and going on lots of um, bike rides. <laughs> and um, yeah, just kind of like really trying to figure out like, okay, who am I beyond this um, highly visible form of um, marginal sex variance? Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't have a title yet. <laughs> She's taking ideas, they're taking ideas. <laughs> Susan, last but not least, tell us a little bit about The Love That Remains. Uh, the Love That Remains, the title that I have, which took a long time to get, um, comes from a Portuguese word or a Portuguese term which is almost impossible to translate into English and one of the best translations is The Love That Remains and it's about the love that remains um, when you are separated from a place or a person that you love very much. My book is, interestingly enough, also about the search for identity because identity can change from when you're in your 20s to when you're in your 50s. And the things that happened to me after I turned 50, I think, had a great influence on who I am now. I'm a very different person to who I was 10 years ago. So basically the book tells the story of me confronting my birth parents when I was 52, 53, and discovering that 
Even though I was very like my mother, I did not like my mother and I did not like my father. It tells the story of him being an IRA fundraiser and her travelling around Australia with him. And I was dropped off at the hospital in Newcastle um, and adopted to a beautiful, beautiful family. So eventually I find these people with a man that I fell in love with when I was about 53. Um, and after that disappointment, we go overseas to Spain to live and unfortunately he dies in rather shocking circumstances and I need to make it home. That's the second part of the book. The third part of the book, because it's in three separate parts, is discovering a terrible secret about what my husband had done when he'd been growing up in Papua New Guinea. And I had to travel there to Papua, to the highlands, to discover what really happened. And it's about reconciling, if you can, somebody who you loved very much and then discovering a terrible secret about what happened before. Um, and then you come through the other end and you're a very different person and those experiences formed who I am now. Thanks so much, Susan. I'm interested to know if there was an actual moment. It's pronounced Sadache and it's spelt S-A-U-D-A-D-E. S-A-U-D-A-D-E. Testing my memory. <laughs> I'm interested to know if there was a particular moment where you realised you wanted to tell a story, you wanted to go public about what is a very personal experience. Was there, did someone say something to you? Were you just reflecting? You know, can you think to that moment where you thought, you know what, I've, I want to make this public, well, I want to at least start to tell this story and put it down. Bree, can you recall a moment in particular? Yeah, for me it was definitely... Um it was within the first couple of weeks of having decided to go to the police and make a complaint. And the feeling I had at that time was that I'd spent a year watching these gladiators, like survivors, especially survivors who make it to the trial stage, are just gladiators. And I'd been watching them with awe going through cross-examinations and just how awful that whole process was for a whole year. And I had thought that that trial part or the courts part was, you know, that was the bad bit. Um, and then I went to the cops and I just had this, the only thing I can liken it to is that you realise you've been looking through a fully zoomed in lens and then you just go zoop and you just see all of a sudden the, like the whole picture. And I realised that what I had been seeing in the courtroom was like the final tiny end tip of the iceberg of what for most survivors, if they do decide to report, is like a, easily a three or four years long process. Um, and just that nobody, I just had this sense that um, who they're sitting in those professional settings, you know, who of the barristers, who of the judges, even who of, who of the police or prosecutors had ever actually had any experience in the other side of things. Um, and so it was very much at that point in time where, and. And also because I had decided to report to the police, um, I, in making that decision, I had to, 
um, basically decide not to pursue my legal career the way I thought I was, the way I'd just spent like seven years prepping for. Um, and so I just sort of had a very overwhelming sense of like, fuck it. Um, yeah, somebody needs to put these two things together. Susan, where do you get the courage to start telling your story? Unfortunately, everyone tells you not to start a memoir out of anger, and that's what I did. I wanted to, after I met my mother, my natural mother, my birth mother, and uh, she was very loath to give me the information that I wanted. And when I did finally get the information, which took you know, over 20 years to, to get that information, I felt that I wanted to put myself down on the page. This is who I am. You can't, you can't mess with my identity for such a long time, for, for my whole life, in fact. And I have to be able to answer that and I have to be able to write myself onto the page. And that was the reason that I started writing it. I don't know that it was courage. I think it was more, more this is who I am. You're not going to keep it from me. And she wasn't the only one involved in keeping the secrets. This is who I am. I'm going to put it down and make myself come into the world. Bastian, when you started, did you have, a, you know, the view to publish or was it more just an exercise in, in just getting thoughts down, feelings down, some experiences? Or, or from the very beginning, did you have a sense... No, I, w I want to see this out there. I want other people to read this. Um, well, I've self-published my zines for like over 15 years. So I think I had already had a little bit of experience of like writing my personal stories and sharing them. And um, I had in like the beginning of 2010, I wrote a little zine called Ladybeard and put that out into the world and it was it was just after I had like decided to grow out my facial hair like in this very purposeful way for the first time and it was the first time that I wrote about it as well and I remember being so scared when I was putting those words on the page and then when I shared them with people I just had this really overwhelmingly positive response and yeah people would email me or they'd come up to me at um, zine fairs and talk to me about my zine and um, yeah I think probably from that moment I realized like uh, I need to be telling more of my personal stories about this thing um, and yeah I think it was also sort of like mid-20s um, being like uh, what am I doing with my life I really want to write I've always wanted to write and I've never kind of like set myself a goal that was so huge that it terrified me. <laughs> um, so it kind of started as like a, um, I signed up to do uh, National Novel Writing Month or NaNoWriMo, um, which is kind of like a community, um, like it's, it's sort of, uh, you just sign up to write a book in one month, basically. Um, so the goal is write 50,000 words in one month. And I remember signing up for it and being like, I'm going to die. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> like the thought of doing that many words. Um, and then I did it in like, I don't know, I think I finished early. And I was like writing like on the bus to work in the morning. I was like working full time in, in admin at a uni at that stage. And uh, I would write with like the laptop screen dimmed all the way to black <laughs> so no one could see what I was writing. I was just like, 
<laughs> and I just, I love that um, with that particular uh, exercise, the goal was to just get past that inner editor. And I think if I hadn't done that, I never would have gotten to this stage now because like so many times the inner editor has um, taken control and um, it's probably why it's taken so long to, I've been working on this for like seven years now. Uh, but, you know, also I probably had to do a bit of growing to be able to write the book that I've written. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think my feelings about why I need to write this book have changed a lot during the process. And, um, uh, yeah, it has, yeah, deciding to write a book, sometimes I'm like, why did I do this to myself? It's so hard. But, you know, in the, in the process I feel like I've really um, – stepped into my own power as a writer, as a person. Uh, so I feel really grateful for, yeah, having set myself this goal. And it's kind of taught me to just stick at something because I've changed so much <laughs> as we all do. You know, like you're like, oh, I'm super interested in this thing. And then a year later, you're like, oh, what was that thing? I can't even remember. <laughs> so actually, you know, focusing on one project for so long has been, um, a, yeah, a great joy. <laughs> You mentioned time there, and I'm curious about how you approach this because you're writing about a period in your life. And when you come to write it, presumably some time has passed. It may be a year, it may be 10 years. And in a sense, you're revisiting the past for the for, you know, future audience, for the people that you want to reach. So in a, you're kind of preserving a time in your life. You have to go back and pull it apart again. You have to analyse it. You're looking at the people around you at that time, the feelings you had at that time. You know, we're always evolving and always changing. It, it, was it difficult to do that? Do you, do you find that memoir ends up kind of freezing you and setting you in ice in a period of your life that now many years later, when we're here talking about a book, in your case, Brie, that came out in 2018, the experiences were a lot earlier than that and yet you're, you're still kind of talking about something happened so long ago. I mean... Is that a good thing about memoir? Is it a is it a catch? Once you put that period down, you're going to have to keep revisiting it. Yeah, it's this is a really good question. Um, uh, so the I was a judge's associate in 2015, and then my investigation went 2016, 2017, and the book came out in 2018. Um, and I now I'm at a stage in my life where um, sometimes people will. So say this year someone picks up my book and reads it for the first time and sends me an email or a, or a DM on social media or says hello at a signing desk um, and talks to me about things that I have written and I haven't read the book in a long time either and and talks and it happens all the time I'm sure you both, Bastian maybe not yet, but you both would have had it where people feel that they know you which is like sort of can be a bit disturbing sometimes but also is very good feedback. Like if somebody reads your book and then feels like they know you, that means you've done your job. Um, but for me, I, I'm a, I feel like a completely different person now. Um, and, and in a good way. <laughs> you know, the, the things I struggled with there that I document in that book for those three years now make up such a tiny, tiny percentage of my like sense of self and what I think about during the day, um, which is fantastic. Um, but also, yeah, the final two chapters of the book, are the, my trial. And because the defendant in my case was sort of moneyed enough to really drag it out and make my life hell, 
um, this awkward and painful thing happened where my deadline to, for, to hand in my manuscript came up really close to the trial date. So after the final day of the trial, um, I had 10 days to hand in the final two chapters of the book, which were the trial. And I now consider that, even at the time I think I knew it, that I was actually grateful for that because I just did the trial. I had 10 days and it was due on, I think, Boxing Day or the day before Christmas. And I just sat down and I just, like, did it. And it almost went to print, like, exactly the way it was written. And it was interesting what Susan said about um, people always tell you not to start writing from a place of anger. And I hear that all the time. Um, but I was furious um, and it seemed to turn out fine. So I just think, um, I just think, you know, sometimes I think if you're, if I think in all writing, but especially in life writing, it is always valuable to listen to the opinions of people who've been there and done that and listen to the opinions of experienced people. But at the end of the day, it's you and you have to make the call for yourself. I also think, too, there's a bit of a gendered aspect to anger in women. Uh, you know, don't do anything, you know, that makes, you know, don't be angry. I mean, that's the message we're told all the time. So it doesn't surprise me that people say to women right, who want to write, you know, don't do it from anger, don't do it. I mean, you know, anger is a perfectly healthy emotion to feel. And uh, so I think that by, by sort of, you know, capitulating, and never and not not uh, not responding to that is is harmful. It can be harmful as well. I think where it comes from often is that if you are writing memoir, it's impossible to do so. Garner says writing is like raising children. It's impossible to do without causing damage. Um, because if you're writing from your life, there's no way you can do that in a silo. Like even if you omit someone completely, you're still making a comment by rendering them absent. And so I think the piece of the advice that I do think is sage is that if you are writing it from a place of anger, you run the risk of maybe being blinded to the collateral that you might be inflicting and that that is something that, you, that is valid cause for pause. Susan, what about you? I mean, you, you write about the love of your life and the painful uh, fallout of, of, his, of his death, his sudden death. You're in a foreign country. It's profound grief and here you are quite a few years later and I, I, I attended your amazing book launch here on the lower ground floor of the library um, when the book was released and you're having to revisit that and talk about that pain and people ask you about it. I'm sure people come up to you and stop you and say, I read the book and, you know, can I talk to you about, you know, when Wayne died and, and I mean, you're in Woolies, um, you know, in the veggie aisle and... Quite a sort of profound personal experience is suddenly public. How, how have you found negotiating that or managing that? So to begin with, I didn't manage it at all. Um, so Wayne died in 2015 and I found out the secret that he'd been holding in 2000 and maybe 17 or 18. So I was writing that just before the book, um, the book was bought. Immediately after the book was bought, there was a lot of publicity. You know, I was on Mia, Mia Friedman. I was, it was just before COVID happened, so there was a lot of publicity. And every single time I spoke to somebody in one of those interviews, I would cry. I, 
I just couldn't help it. People would ask me questions and I wanted to answer honestly and that meant going back to my feelings and my emotions and answering honestly. Um, now, after all this time, though it's not that long, maybe it's 18 months, now I can actually talk about it and not cry. And I feel that I've got some distance from it. Um, in fact, I can't remember, maybe three or four months ago is the last time I cried. So I think the process happened naturally. Now I almost look at us in the book as characters. That's the kind of distance I have. Um, it's only on things like birthdays and anniversaries that that grief comes rolling back and I know to expect that now. So I don't know if I managed it, maybe it managed me, maybe the process of writing the memoir helped in that way. But now I do have distance, which is a wonderful thing and I'm really thankful for it because anyone who's ever suffered that kind of grief, you, need, you can't live it your whole life. I want to go back to something you mentioned about anger and, and you referred to kind of collateral damage and that, that can come from writing about real experiences and, and real people. Can we talk about the ethics of memoir? Because this fascinates me as a journalist. Uh, you know, we have a code of ethics. The, the, our union has a code of ethics. I worked for Fairfax and the ABC. There's a code of ethics about how we should behave as, as journalists. How do you write about people closest to you, people who have come into your life with, with no knowledge that they're going to appear in a book? I mean, I, you know, I think of my life and the people I know and if any one of them, my, you know, my ex-husband, for example, turned around and said, I'm writing a memoir, um, you know, it would, we'd get on well, but it would cause me a little bit of anxiety. Uh, how do you negotiate the ethics of writing about, because in telling your story, you're going to involve other people around you. How do you negotiate that? What was the path you took? Did you show bits of your book to people? Did you uh, keep it quiet? I mean, how do you negotiate that? I'd be interested to hear from all three of you on this, because I'm sure you've all got very different ways of, of dealing with this. Yeah, um, so it's very personal and I can only answer for myself and my opinions on it. Um, and also I believe the ethics uh, of each book are probably different. Um, and I have approached each of my different books with different attitudes. With Eggshell Skull, um, in some ways my task as an author was a little bit easier because I had a bad guy. And I, for example, could have named the defendant in my case because he was found guilty, um, but I made the decision not to because his family are lovely and his family didn't ask for that. Um, and so I changed his name. I changed everyone's names. The judge I worked for, who um, was and is an incredible man, I've said before and I'll say it again, if more men like him were in the legal industry, perhaps books like mine need not be written. Um, I showed him the whole thing and we sat together in his office and I would not have, well, I hope I wouldn't have um, published the book without his sort of blessing. Um, what if, can I stop you there? What if he'd come back and said, not happy with that, 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 would you have removed? I did. 
because he it is like as a testament to his character i i just sort of part of me knew when i gave him the manuscript that um the only things and what happened was the only things he had issued any issues with were not even really about him he just sort of picked up a few uh errors in law for me which i was very grateful for uh and just a few things where maybe the anger thing where it was like, you know, stuff that happened in that building during that year, he would sort of say this thing on page whatever, 35, I just made that up. Um, do you think that really adds to the point you're trying to make? And without fail, it was like maybe half a dozen things in a 110,000 word book, he was always right and I can't even like remember what they are. Um, I give each one of my manuscripts to my partner to read. That is a painful process um, because my my personal belief is that if you choose to write about anything, even fiction, I believe you are, in a sense, betraying a deep social contract. Um, it's... This is, yeah, obviously this is just my sort of where I've come to, but you... You're turning people you love into material, even if you write fiction. You can't help it. Um, thing, just little blips that you see on a regular Tuesday, whatever. But my opinion is that, and all artists do it. The, all artists do it. Um, it's just that with writing, because everyone, well, I should say, because most people can read and write and it's like there is a kind of over, a kind of threat that that anyone could could write a memoir any sort of ex-husband or ex-wife or you know any disgruntled anyone could could write their their version of how things are whereas um i can't pick up a paintbrush i can't you know sit down pick at the piano yeah yeah um whereas writing has that level of access which is in my opinion one of the things that makes it one of the most fantastic art forms um but it it makes it easy for for it to be misused almost as an art form. Um, and so with my next book that comes out in June, Who Gets to Be Smart, um, a huge part of it is that a very dear friend of mine, Damien, brilliant young man, was named a Rhodes Scholar. And I went over to visit him in Oxford and take a tour of Rhodes House and everything in 2018. Um, and it really kicked the book off in a direction of asking who are the sort of winners and losers in the game of brains and education. Um, and I went into that project making explicit from the beginning that I would be writing about it and that Damien would have complete um, – I've showed him every step of the way. But, again, um, it's sort of the same as with my judge where he reads a manuscript and the only thing he picks up is that those overalls were mint green, not sage green. Uh, and he has no issues with him being portrayed in a sort of complex manner and I wouldn't pick subjects who I thought I was actually sort of crossing and that they would want to really fundamentally change things. Um, but what I have learned, sorry I'm rambling, the final thing I'll say is that you can never pick, you can never predict what people will and won't be happy about. A mistake I made with Eggshell Skull was presuming that people who I had portrayed positively would be fine with it because I portrayed them so positively. Um, and also if people aren't in there and they thought they should be, they might be upset. Like you can't, you can never pick what people will and won't be upset by. Sometimes people will see themselves in a character and it's not even them. Sometimes people will pick up your book and have made a decision before they even crack the spine, whether or not they'll have an issue with the fact that you've written it. And you can never 
ever predicted. Yep. Wow. Lots to digest. Bastian. Um, so following from the <laughs> legal professional's answer to the question about ethics, <laughs> um, I think, yeah, you have a right to tell your story. Um, and I think that the question of ethics is a really complex one and one that all writers have to constantly ask themselves. And I don't think that I have an answer because I'm still grappling with it. Um, but I guess I would say it's good to have a a version of the story that you write for yourself, um, and that might not be the version that gets published, um, or maybe elements of that will get published. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's always your story from your perspective. It's it's not the 100% truth, and other people are always going to contest the narratives or even the memories that you have. Um, but yeah, I think um, in my decision making, I've been kind of weighing up like what feels authentic, uh, what's important to the story. And there are plenty of things that I wrote that will never go into the published version because I just wrote them because I was pissed off and I wanted to be like, finally, I win in this situation. <laughs> this is my version where I, you know, really shine. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I guess... Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard when you are writing, like essentially it is character, it is a story, but you also, uh, people read it and are like, this is the absolute truth and uh, and that character version of you is you. So you kind of have to like um, hold space for both of those things. Um, and yeah, I just think um, it's really, if something, if you're writing and you're like, I don't know if I feel right about this, it's always good to just talk about it with other people get other perspectives and um, really just sit with with it and go is this something that is um, is it am I scared of it because um, it's powerful and I need to say it and it might ruffle feathers but actually it'll it'll have you know this really positive effect or um, or do I actually just not feel okay about writing this you know I, it's it's a personal choice I think at the end of the day yeah Susan uh, so I had a few issues. Obviously, I was writing about my natural parents to begin with. Um, what I did was change the name of the town where they both came from. I changed their names. I changed everything that could possibly identify them so that my adoption story became a story that was still true but my parents were unidentifiable and I went to great lengths to do that. There's even a section in the book where someone else had written about my mother and I read that page and that was the first time I ever felt that I belonged to her or that I came from her. I recognised things in her that I recognised in myself and I couldn't put that section in as it was because that would have identified her straight away. So I wrote, rewrote that section and didn't attribute it to the person and did everything I possibly could to make sure that, that the meaning was still there because it was a very important time. It was a very important thing that I read but that she could not be identified. All my family read the book 
Um, so I gave him that opportunity beforehand and I named all my family. And my best friend, Di, who's sitting there in the second row, who is mentioned throughout the book, she read the book. In fact, the night before I sent it to Alan and Unwin, we're sitting in the study going through it and trying to make sure that it was, um, that it was good. Um, with my husband, that was so much harder. Um, I wrote a version of the book and it almost got picked up, but it didn't have the final section in it. It didn't talk about what Wayne had done in Papua New Guinea. And a publisher down in Melbourne said that they would like it and I told my agent about the last bit that I'd only just found out. I'd only just found out what he'd done. And I was still trying to come to terms with that. And, you know, I was really afraid of becoming Helen Demidenko. You know, I've got this wonderful story, this wonderful love story, and then there's, there's this part of the story that had the ability to turn that all on its head. And I was a little bit worried because the trial that he'd been involved in was on the internet. And once I knew what had happened, I knew where to look and there it was. And I thought, God, anyone could read that and, you know, and find out what had happened. So, you know, it was really hard. It's really hard. Do I write this or don't I write this? And in the end, I felt it was right for the story. The story almost became a circular structure. We came right back around to, in fact, you aren't who you're married to. You aren't who your parents are. You aren't any of those things. You're you and how you manage those things. So in the end, I put that section in. I tried to write it respectfully. Um, when Wayne's mother read it, she said that I'd been honest and that's all that she could ask. Her opinion meant a lot to me. And that's how I coped with it. But it was not easy, not at all easy. We're going to go to questions. I'm sure you've got questions. There will be um, a microphone. Um, Nigel, would you be able to grab the microphone? Um, and we're just going to put it in the aisle and please speak into the mic because we are recording these sessions. We don't have to put your, your question in the recording. They're going to go up as – these sessions will go up as podcasts. So if your question's not recorded, it, you know, it can't even make the podcast even if you want it to. So, but it's also just beneficial for us so we can hear you clearly. But um, if you have a question, otherwise I'll keep chatting. Please don't be shy. You'll have to go to the mic. Yes. How do you negotiate the, all of the complex th themes that run through a uh, biography or um, writing um, from your own personal experience? So many, it gets very complicated. Like how do you choose your theme? How do you negotiate it? What, for me, it seems as though there's so many um, issues that could be raised, how do you edit or weave them logically without overdoing? Um, how do you choose? Really good question, especially for someone who's still trying to pull it together <laughs> and decide which threads are important. Um, 
maybe, yeah, maybe it's just about what you feel makes a really good story and is a good representative of the kind of um, aspect of your life that you want to talk about. Because we're all so complex, like, you know, you could write your life story forever and still be living it and still be changing it. So uh, maybe, yeah, it's about what is going to be right for that book. Uh, what does the book want to be? Um, and yeah, maybe just like what feels authentic to you to write about or most urgent at the time of writing. I think the idea that I wanted to get across was about identity and how we find out who we are and the effects that other people have on us. And secondary, it was about past and how keeping secrets in the past, they need to be, they need to be, you need to confront them, otherwise you can't move on with, with who you are. And those are the two things that I always wanted to write about and my, it's really interesting, my life followed those ideas and so naturally, so the structure of the book um, dictated not dictated but moulded what it was I was trying to say and also at the end when I looked back and read it and I was beginning to see threads that I hadn't seen when I was writing it and all of a sudden I'm reading this book that I'd written but there are things that I know I need to pull tighter you know like you're stitching something I need to pull that tighter and I could see it after I'd finished. So an evolving evolve completely evolving process to come to the end premise. Yeah, right until the very last oh. minute <laughs> when we found, you know, you had the beetle nut in, in Papua New Guinea and the book had been through editing three times with Alan and Elman. I'd read it a million times. Di had read it. My brother had read it. My son had read it. So many people had read it. And there was the word beetle spelt B-E-E-T-L-E. <laughs> like that would have brought what I was trying to do. Yeah, it wouldn't have been good. That's just human. That's human. That's being human. That's being human. I mean, we're not machines. So I know, but it's devastating when you pick up something like that, believe me. Bree, did you want to add anything? Uh, just that my answer is much more mechanical. So um, just with Eggshell Skull, uh, I try to think about putting a book together like a music composer in terms of you can imagine a music composer sitting there and like with a tweezer placing each note and sweating and like painstakingly working and reworking and reworking every passage. But the ideal is that then when an audience finally sits down and listens to someone on the piano, it, it sounds so easy. And so with like editing Eggshell Skull, it's actually a huge book. Um, I got to the stage where I would print out or just get very large sheets of cartridge paper and I put each chapter, each trial that I'd chosen to talk about in each chapter, each sentence, how much jurisprudence, like how much of the sort of legal philosophy was in large chunks in each chapter, make sure that it wasn't too clumped here or too clumped there. When do I reference these certain people? When do I reference really upsetting content? Is that over, overdone in any area and like actually create a visual map because I had been working on the content for so long that I was like too close to see it unless I made it data almost. Um, and I did like so many rounds of all kinds of different editing approaches like that so that ideally 
by the time somebody picks up the pink book and reads it, it just goes. Like that's the dream. Question, next question. It seems to me that promoting a memoir like this, so personal, can be quite gruelling and damaging to the mental health of the author. And I'm just wondering what you see as the, whether publishers have a duty of care to protect authors who are doing that whole publicity in such a sort of, especially mental health sort of memoir. Can I jump in here? Because it's interesting and I don't want to put you on the spot, Bree, but I host sessions at Byron Writers Festival every year and a couple of years ago I was hosting a panel with you but I'd seen you in conversation one-on-one -on -one with, with Elsa Piper. And uh, it was not long after the book came out and you, were, you seemed quite distressed on stage. You seemed quite upset. You, you, it was very emotional. And it kind of stayed with me because then I had you in a panel after that and, and I think you, you, you possibly started to get emotional and I'd made someone else cry on another panel that day and I've got a bit of reputation for people crying when I do interviews. And I said, please don't cry, Brie. Um, and I... Afterwards, this is between us in the room, um, but we'll cut this out of the podcast, but I raised it with writers' festival directors, uh, not, not specifically you, but that incident stayed with me. And we had a big meeting of about 17 writers' festival directors from around Australia and some international directors. And I asked the room, when we're sitting in Auckland, uh, what is our duty of care to writers who have written particularly traumatic memoir and, and putting them on four or five panels. I, I don't do that personally, um, but the bigger festivals will often have a writer doing three or four events condensed over a few days. And I can see the writer as time goes on, the emotional fatigue set in. And I said, do, and I mean, the room was silent and there was no answer and there's never been an answer about it. But I'm very aware of it as a director and I will intentionally only put a writer, you know, of a certain genre, if it's particularly challenging, on one session, two at the most, because I feel personally a duty of care, and I don't want to gain from their pain. It's 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 a strange dilemma. Maybe I'm taking it all a bit too seriously, but I feel we do have a, you know, while tears on stage might make a session meaningful and moving, uh, I also don't want to be responsible for adding to someone's trauma. And that trauma can revisit at certain times. I was on a panel with another writer who had been talking about the book for quite some time, maybe a year or more, and it was just one particular question I asked. And suddenly that writer was overwhelmed with trauma. They were back in the situation that was horrific to them on stage. They had, in a sense, a breakdown. And I hadn't taken them there. I hadn't said, let's go back to that day when you had to dig that body up and you're 13 years old. I hadn't said that. It was a very gentle question, but trauma revisits when you least expect it sometimes. And I, I felt it was it was a really confronting experience on stage. And I just wonder about that too. So yes, um, yeah, the impact and, and having to revisit that trauma. So that particular event with Elsa Piper, I remember um, because I was obviously just crying and very upset. I was upset because Elsa Piper to this date has been one of the most loving and kind interviewers I've ever had for an event. And so for me, 
when people like there were a few the first time I the first couple I ever did it was sort of similar with Susan where it was like the first two or three you're just crying because you're talking about stuff that you you just haven't ever really talked to many people about and you're still just getting used to that feeling um but then um I got to the point where I was able to sort of, um, for myself, just sort of professionalize it. And when people would ask me questions, particularly journalists who would try and go hard, I would just sort of straighten my back and and be, try and just be a professional about it. And the reason that session with Ailsa was so difficult was because she is so kind and gentle and loving and the way she was understanding the work and asking me questions about it made me comfortable enough to to actually sort of to, to go there. Um, and I just remember, oh, it makes me teary now. She was the first person I'd ever heard say, um, she just said to me, well, this book, it's the hero's journey. And I, yeah. Um, and in terms of duty of care, I've seen it go both ways. I am so incredibly supported by both my agent and my publisher. My agent is Grace Heifetz at Left Bank Literary. My publisher is Jane Paul Freeman at Allen and Umwin. And they are two of the best friends anyone could ask for and two of the most, like, baddest bitches. Like, if anyone, if I'm not comfortable with anything, if I feel like anyone's pushed things too far, if journalists have crossed me and behaved unethically, which they certainly have, I feel like I am at the tip of an attack V and just have this real support network. But I've also seen other authors very like, and it keeps happening every year, um, who don't have that, and it's awful. And people make money from, especially young and/or emerging authors writing about traumatic content. That's a money maker, and there is absolutely, in my opinion, a duty of care. It might be hard to articulate sometimes, but it's there, and it's certainly obvious when it's absent. People doing that is absent. We've got to wrap it up in one minute. Um, Bastian, Susan, did you want to add anything to that question? Um, well, I guess I've, I feel like I've had so many experiences in public where people look at me, take photos of me, ask me invasive questions about why do I have facial hair? Um, and I kind of feel like writing is a way of like, uh, I can finally move beyond this sort of like, 19th century bearded lady where you're just silent and people look at you and they're like whoa that's weird and then like actually like being able to claim the narrative and be like this is my story I have something to say I have been thinking about these issues a lot <laughs> so yeah I don't know I haven't been there yet of being uh, asked lots of questions by journalists but um I'm I feel hopeful that the story I'll be able to tell is also going to be healing for me and yeah and a positive experience and something positive for people to read about. Yeah. We have to wrap it up. There's one more question. Can we make, do you want to ask a quick question? Um, uh, okay, well, do you, may, I might get you to stop then and I might. Oh, I'll ask it quickly then. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to know what a better trauma informed approach would be um, and when it's appropriate for a writer to say, I don't want to answer that question you need to improve your trauma-informed skills. I had a great publicity officer I like Bree. I was um, through Alan and Unwin and my publisher is Annette Barlow and she 
really looks after her writers. And I went to Mia Friedman interview and the same. She was so lovely that she had me crying. Uh, I think we were there for an hour and a half because she ended up doing two, two lots of her podcast off that one interview. And as we walked out, um, we were in Surrey Hills and my publicist said, I will never take somebody there and then because I had to go straight to Channel 9 and do something else so it was back to back. She said, I've learnt from this that I can't program that kind of publicity so close together. So I think, I think learning as well. People are still learning and, and she learnt that day and so did I. Um, and I'll know never to do that again and question it. Thank you and join me in thanking our panellists, Bree Lee, Bastian and Susan. Stories to you.